Let's open one word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. Indeed, Lord, we ask that you would breathe on us with the Holy Spirit this morning. Father, in Jesus' name, send the Holy Spirit into your church. Give your church wisdom and understanding. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. We don't want to miss anything you have for us today, this day, Lord. And Father, whatever we have brought with us today, whatever challenges, troubles, I pray that we can come and lay them before your altar this day, that we can hear the voice of our shepherd speaking to us, comforting us and strengthening us, transforming us unto the image of Christ. So I lift your church to you this day, Lord. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to give our full attention to you. And I pray, Lord, that you'd be magnified and glorified in our time together. And we just ask all these things in the wonderful and precious name of Jesus Christ and God's people said, amen. In John chapter 13, we see Jesus do something quite remarkable. He washed his disciples' feet. It was a pivotal moment in the life of the disciples and in the ministry of the disciples, and it would in many ways shape their understanding of ministry, of what it was to look like, and of that overarching quality that was to infuse their ministry. And in John chapter 13 and verse 1, it reads this. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let me read that again. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What is that one quality that really drove Jesus, especially as he washed his disciples' feet? You know, when we think about those qualities of Jesus that we find so compelling, that draw us in, What are those qualities? What are those attributes that really stand out? For some, it may be his courage. His courage, his willingness to stand up for what was right. His willingness to stand in the face of hypocrisy. For some, it might be his compassion. His willingness to reach out to those who are on the margins of society. Lepers prostitutes, those who found themselves on the outside looking in. But for me, there's one quality that stands out above all. As a matter of fact, one quality that drives his courage, drives his compassion and everything else. And that, of course, is this quality of love. Of love. Genuine, sincere love. For me, that is the most significant quality that Jemins demonstrates both in word and in action. In in many ways, I find Jesus to be the embodiment of love. That if we want to see what love looks like to be lived out, we need to look no further than Jesus Christ. Well, today I want us to take a look, a deeper look at this idea of love, this genuine love as expressed in community, as expressed in Christ. 
Today, let's take a look at how our community is strengthened when we genuinely love others in our attitudes and in our actions. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, we're going to be picking up in verse 9. We're going to read through the end of the chapter, which is verse 21. Romans 12, verse 9. Now, let's read this first sentence together. Romans 12, 9, in verse 1, this first sentence. What does it say? Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Everything else that follows after this sentence really is, in many ways, an expression of genuine love. Let love be genuine. I want that thought, that sentence to be resonating in your mind as we go through this passage today as we talk about these things. But let's continue on. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. I said that earlier. Do not be haughty. I love that word haughty. We don't say that enough. It's arrogant. <laughs> Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, for by doing for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All right. Two major points I want us to take a look at here today. I want us to take a look at the priority of love, and I want us to take a look at the practice of love. The priority of love and the practice of love. Let's turn to those things in turn. Let's talk about first the priority of love. Now, last week we talked about the priority of community. What does it mean for us as a church, as God's people, to live in a community with one another? Well, one of the overarching ways in which we live in community with one another is we allow the fuel of love to drive us. It starts with genuine love. How do we have community? It starts with genuine love. Now, this love that Paul is speaking of here, this agape love, it's not some nebulous, abstract idea. All right? The word here used for love, agape, refers to God's unconditional love. You see, part of the problem is, is that when we hear the word love, we have a hard time defining it. Hard time understanding, because for different people, love seems to mean different things. And that's because in the world around us, people often define love subjectively. It's rooted in how they feel and what they think. 
Whereas God, this agape love is more objective, not subjective. It's important to recognize that the original language in which this was written, Greek, the term love, they use different words to help us understand what love is because it's such a multifaceted idea. We tend to use the word love for everything. The same, I love you, honey, is the same, I love pasta. <laughs> Are you saying I'm like pasta? No, 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 that's not what I'm saying at all. It, but we use the same word for it. Whereas in the original language, Greek, you know, you've, you've got... Um, you know, ten, there are four words intended to identify love. You had, of course, the words philo or phila. You've heard the term Philadelphia, brotherly love. It's this affection, this love we have for our close friends, for those that are close to us. And then, of course, you have the term eros. It's where we get erotic from. That is the idea of romantic or sexual love as expressed maybe between a husband and wife. And then there's the term storge, which is a familial love. You know, it's, it's a family love. You know, it's, it's a kind of love that even if you've got members of your own family, that uncle, you can't stand his views, but they're family, so you love them. And then, of course, there's the term agape. Agape is a love rooted in God's nature. It's a word they had to almost create to identify God's love toward us. It's this notion or idea of unconditional love is revealed in God's grace and seen in Jesus Christ. The world around us has this nebulous, kind of almost plastic idea of love because it's a love, once again, rooted in a subjective, it's rooted in subjectivism. It's rooted in me. And so it's, it's centered on what I feel, what I want. And so that if you don't accept me for, you know, for my views, then you don't love me. And it's like, well, no, I, I do love you. I just don't accept your views. <laughs> you understand that that's how the world tends to view love. Whereas for God, for God's people, love is more rooted in an objective understanding. It's best seen in Christ and in God's word. And it's best revealed in its actions. Its actions. We'll talk about that here in more detail. But it's important to note that for the Christian, love is not an option. Love is a way of life. Love is not an option. Love is a way of life. This is what we are called to. And so, when we talk about the priority of love, we've seen the priority of love in a few things. First, we see it in its call. Its call. In Mark chapter 12, we see Jesus asked an important question. Jesus is arguing with the Sadducees. And one of the scribe, a scribe comes up and is noticing that Jesus is, is having a debate with the Sadducees. And in verses 20 through 31, we read this. And one of the scribes came up and heard them, Jesus and the Sadducees, disputing with one another. And seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, he asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And what Jesus is not doing is he's not dismissing all the other commandments. What he is saying that all the commandments are rooted in this notion or idea of love. That this is where they find their foundation. That we shall love our God with all our being, with everything we've got, with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's basically a way of saying you love God with everything you have. And then you love your neighbor as yourself. That is what all the commandments said. It was what everything is built upon. That's where it finds its philosophical and practical foundation. You ask yourself this question, am I, am, what am I, is what I'm doing, is it being done out of love? Because I want you to understand something. There may be times when you have to make difficult decisions and say things to people they don't want to hear, but if it's being done out of love, then it's being done with the right motive. And so the priority of love is seen first in its call, that it is the very foundation on which we build. It is the very place on which we, everything stems from. We ask ourselves the question, Lord, is this being done out of love? And we see this expressed in its most pure form, of course, in Christ. Why is that? Because we know this, that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the priority of love. So, first it's seen in its call, but it's also seen in its character. Its character. Again, back to verse 9, it says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. This idea of genuineness, this sincerity, some of your translations may say, let love be sincere. It's rooted in this idea of this. Do not let your love be rooted in hypocrisy. Don't be hypocritical about your love. That's the word picture here with this word. Genuine, sincere, without hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy comes from uh, the idea, the word picture for it is, is an actor on a stage. That actor wears a mask and is playing a part. And so what we're called to be as a people is we're called to be genuine. We're not called to be people who play a part, who are wearing a mask, who are feigning that we're doing one thing, but in our hearts, we believe another. We are called to be a people who genuinely love others. That that love is not an act, it's not a performance, it's not for all to see, but rather it's done out of a heart that desires to honor God and to love a neighbor. Our priority of love is seen in its character, and we do that by abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good. And this is where it gets hard, because sometimes love calls us to say or do the hard thing that goes against the grain of what this world thinks and believes. There are going to be times when we are called out of loving God and loving others that we are called to take a stand for what is right in the eyes of God. That when we love others, we're saying, look, I disagree with you, but I love you. That's a hard thing to do. And you see, what happens is that people in the world around us interpret that to understand that, oh, you really don't love me. No, actually, I do love you. 
Think about this. <clears throat> if you go to the doctor, and the doctor, looking at your test, recognizes that you have a serious illness. Now, this illness can be dealt with if confronted. But it's hard. It's hard. I imagine it must be hard. I would not want to be a doctor who has to sit down with a patient and tell them bad news. Here's your test results. Here's what we got. You know, I don't know how else to tell you this, but you're very ill. It doesn't look good. That's a hard thing to do. Now, what if a doctor, out of a desire to avoid feeling bad, they don't want their patient to feel bad. They want them to feel good. And so what if, out of desire to make them feel good, they sit down and say, everything's fine. You're great. You're going to live a long and prosperous life. And everybody's like, happy, happy. Is that a good doctor? No. I understand the desire to do that, but that's not a good doctor. A good doctor is honest. They say, look, okay, we've got some test results here, and they don't look good. Here's exactly what's going on, but you know what? We can do something about this. There's hope. There's hope. And so here's what we need to do. That's the loving thing to do. I understand sometimes you want to tell people what they want to hear and you want to make them feel good. That's fine. But you know what? That's not always the loving thing to do. Love is seen in its character. It's without hypocrisy. It is sincere. It tells the truth. But it does it in a way that affirms the value of the person it's being told to. And so priority of love is seen in its call. It's seen in its character, but it's also seen in its consistency. It's consistency. Notice what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. By the way, if you want a definition of love, you want to say, Darren, you have not defined love for me. I don't have to. God already has. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, says, love never ends. Now, I want to ask you something. What part of that is hard to understand? Love never ends. Love never fails, some of your translations may say. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But love will never end. Love will never fail. At the end of chapter 13, Paul says, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Why is that? Because here's the thing. When we're standing before God, when we finally are face-to-face -face with our Creator, do you need faith? No, you're there. Do you need hope? No, you're there. But love will always be there. Love will always be part of our existence. It will never go away. And so love never ends. As for prophecies, one day they're going to pass away. Tongues, they're going to cease. No need for them. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. We'll be in the presence of the one who knows everything. But love will never end. And this is the challenge of love. You see, for many people, love has a limit. And what I mean by that, it's like, I've had enough with you. I'm done with you. You're dead to me. I understand the temptation to do that sometimes. And by the way, I'm not saying that there are times you're going to have relationships where you say, I cannot have you in my life anymore. I love you, but I can't have you in my life anymore. Understand that. But that's a different sermon for a different day.
Suffice to say right now, love has a consistency to it. It's constant. It doesn't fail. It recognizes its priority. It keeps trying. It doesn't give up. It does not give up hope. You here have family members that you've been praying for for years, family, friends. Don't give up. Keep loving them. The priority of love is seen in its call, that it's our priority. Its character, that it is to be sincere, without hypocrisy. Its consistency, that it doesn't end, it doesn't fail. And finally, in its conduct. Its conduct. <clears throat> Back to 1 Corinthians. Verse 4. 13, chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Oh man, that's a hard one for me. Irritable. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You know what? This is hard. But this is how God loves us. <clears throat> this is how God loves us. You know, God puts up with a lot in me. I'm going to tell you that right now. God is patient and kind. He does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant. He is not rude. I mean, I just, I love this. Not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God puts up with a lot of nonsense for me. We see love in its character, in its conduct. In other words, in its conduct, we see this is how love acts toward another person. And this is hard. And by the way, I want to make something very clear. This is not the kind of thing that you can drum up on your own. If you think you can live with somebody long enough and never be irritated with them, then I just want to give you another a, a reality check here. All right? Isn't going to happen. Aside from the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. Why? Because this is a God kind of love. This is not a world type of love. This is not the kind of love that you can just build up over, you know, it's, it's not something the world gives. This is something that God gives. This is something that God is and does and gives to us. And so if we want to love in this way, which we are called to do, then we must have the Holy Spirit living in us. The Holy Spirit must be that portion of our life that, that says, Lord, right now in my flesh, I am really irritated. But love, love is not irritable or resentful, Lord. So I need your spirit right now to not be irritated or resentful toward this person. That's when we go on our knees before God and say, God, help me right now because this person is driving me nuts. But your word says, Lord, your word says that love is not irritable or resentful. 
It does not insist on its own way. So Lord, I have to come before you and submit to your word. And I ask that you would fill me with the spirit. The spirit of the living God. That I would not be resentful toward this person. That I would not be irritable toward them. Can you give me that, Lord? Can you please give me the spirit so that I can deal with them in a gracious and loving fashion? This is the kind of love that only God can give because this is the kind of love that God is. It's not something we can drum up on our own. As sinful, fallen, broken human beings, we cannot drum this up by ourselves. We need the spirit of God living in us. And so we see here the priority of love, seen in its call, its character, its consistency, and its conduct. But how do we practice this love? How is it practiced? That's a very good question. You know, over the years, many have waxed philosophically about love. Oh, they love the idea of love. We love the idea of love. Right? I mean, who doesn't love the idea of love? You know, you read a nice poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, and you're just filled with the idea of love. It's wonderful. But then you live with somebody long enough, and suddenly the practice of love rears its ugly head. <laughs> I like, you know, I didn't think loving you was going to be quite this hard. She is a pastor who has officiated weddings and done a number of premarital counseling. I just, I love listening to them just hold hands and smile at each other and, and I just think, all right, reality check time. Because the practice of love is a whole different story. You see, love endures. One year, two year, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. My in-laws, my wife's parents have been married for 63 years now. 63 years. And do they get irritated with each other once in a while? Sure. But do they love each other deeply? Absolutely. It's a love that only God can give. It's the practice of love that has brought them this far. It is the spirit that has brought them this far. If we want the spirit to carry us, then what must we do? Well, here's the thing. Biblical love is best modeled in Christ and seen in its actions. Genuine love chooses to focus on the needs and well-being of the one loved. This attribute is important because it binds the church together in unity and serves an example to the world around us of what love looks like. <clears throat> in Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes this. In verses 12 through 14 of three, chapter 3 of Colossians, he says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all, <clears throat> above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, it's all these characteristics you look at. Compassion, kindness, humility, patience, forgiveness. All these things depend on what? They depend on love. Love is that 
common binding agent which brings all of these qualities together and lets them be expressed in our lives. And so we see love in practice when we not only love others in the church, but also love others in the world. Because in this, in here in Romans, Paul seems to be indicating to the church, you are to love those within the church, but you're also to love those in the world. And how can we best do that? Well, we are called to love others in the church first with conviction. We've talked about this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, love each other with conviction. Let your love be sincere. Let it come from a genuine place. Don't act like you love somebody else. Really love them. And you do that by putting their interests first. Their interests first. You think of them first before yourself. So we love others in the church first with conviction, but we love them also with commitment. With commitment. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. We love each other with commitment. That means that we don't give up. All right? We hold out in hope. We are patient in tribulation, we are patient in difficult times. Have you ever had somebody who they're just, they're having a really difficult time in their lives, and it seems like this difficult time is stretching out a long time? <laughs> Here's the thing. We, we tend to expect that, we know everybody goes through hard times. We know that. But we often tend to define how long those hard times should last. <clears throat> yes, I know you've lost everything, but you should be able to get over that in a month or two. After that, I expect your attitude to change. It's going to take some people a little longer than that. We need to be patient in tribulation. We need to recognize that people deal with grief and loss in different ways, and sometimes it takes some people longer than others. And we just need to love them. We need to let them know that we're standing at their side, that we have their back, no matter how long it takes them. I'm not arguing for codependency or anything like that. I'm arguing that we are just a people who genuinely love others and want their best interests and recognize that sometimes some people, they just struggle with loss and difficulty and challenge. And we need to come alongside of them that they may know that they are not alone. And in those people, we need to be constant in prayer, just praying for them. Just pray and do not give up hope. And so we love others in the church with conviction. Let it be sincere. We love others with commitment. Don't give up on them. And thirdly, we love others in the church with compassion. With compassion. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. If there are others around you who have need, try to meet those needs as best as you can. I'm not saying that you have to be the one to meet all their needs. I'm saying that we need to do what we can to do our part to help others. There are others in our community who are probably suffering right now. having a very difficult time, suffering great loss. These storms were very difficult on them. People were living down there off Main Street near 41, Silver City, the flooding. I mean, they're probably, I can't imagine some of the difficulty they're enduring. And others in other parts of the city, other parts of the Central Coast, what can we do to come alongside of them? to help them, to pray for them, to contribute to their needs, to help them in their time of need. 
<clears throat> we see love in practice when we love others in the church with conviction, with commitment, and with compassion. But we also love others in the world when we love them with empathy. Notice what he says here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. We'll talk about that more here in a minute. <clears throat> but verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We can love others in the church and in the world by empathizing with them. Empathizing with them. Coming alongside of them and empathizing with them in their difficult time. If they are rejoicing, rejoice with them. If they are in mourning, mourn with them. Come alongside and mourn with them. Mourn their loss. Don't come in with all the answers. Don't come in with all the fixes and everything else. Come in and come alongside and mourn with them in their difficulty, in their challenge. Step alongside of them and help them. But we show love to them when we are empathetic with others around us. We love others in the world when we love them with humility. We don't make it all about us. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Love them with humility. Look, come in with humility. Don't come in thinking you have all the answers or, or everything else. Come in and just be humble and just even just say, hey, look, I'm here. What do you need? I'm at your service. All right? Uh, you know, and help where you can. If you do have some answers, then, of course, bring those answers and utilize your gifts and your skills and your talents and your resources and everything you can to come alongside them. But be humble about it. Don't make it all about you. Come in. Give. Don't demand anything in return. <clears throat> Don't demand that two months later <clears throat> that they have a feast in your name or something like that. <clears throat> Just humbly give. Give with humility. And then finally, we love others in the world with empathy, with humility, but also with forgiveness. And this is where things get challenging. With forgiveness. <clears throat> he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And in verse 17, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. <clears throat> in other words, look, Paul recognizes that there are going to be people that you deal with that just are obstinate. And that you try to live at peace with them, and they just refuse. You can't force somebody else to live in a certain way. You can't force their thoughts. You can't force them. So as much as you can... From your part, live at peace with everyone. If they want to be argumentative, let them be argumentative. That's going to be on them. But as far as you can, live at peace with everyone. Don't you be that person. <clears throat> Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Trust in the Lord's justice. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. <clears throat> For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And what does he mean by that? <coughs> Excuse me. You're going to bring injury to them? No, no. The point he's being made is this, is that have you ever treated somebody so poorly and they treated you with grace and you felt like a complete knucklehead afterwards? Has anybody ever done that? There have been times 
where I've just been really irritated. Well, I don't know, something could be some service, or maybe I get a bill, or I get a situation where I'm doing it. I thought I resolved this, and so you call up a, an 800 number, and you're dealing with somebody, and you're just chewing them out. You know what I mean? You're just giving them the old one-two. But they treat you with grace, and they say, sir, I'm so sorry, let me help you with this, and they just treat you with grace. How do you feel at the end of that call? Man, I feel like an idiot. You know, I'm really so sorry I treated you so poorly. I don't, I feel, that wasn't me. That was my twin brother um, who was on the phone. That's what he's talking about there. When, when somebody is just in your face and you just treat them with, you treat them with respect, you treat them with dignity, you treat them with kindness and compassion, what does that do? It brings a sense of shame on them. They recognize they're in the wrong. They recognize what's going on there. But he, the principle stands. If your hun- enemy is hungry, and we're not doing it so that they have shame, we're doing it because it's the right thing to do. Our goal isn't to heap shame on people. Our goal is simply to do the right thing, and we recognize when we do the right thing, others oftentimes will recognize their wrongdoing. And he says, finally, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Look, forgiveness and graciousness needs to be a regular part of our lives. This is how we express love toward others. Why is that? Because this is how God deals with us on a regular basis. You know, God puts up with some foolishness on my part. Really. There's some part, you know, there's times where I'm just like, and God, God puts up, you know, he, he, God's very gracious toward me. He's very gracious toward all of us. But we love others in the world when we deal with them with forgiveness. When we recognize that we don't practice vengeance. That vengeance is not our domain. It's God's domain. God will dole out vengeance in his time. God is the righteous judge. And he is able to judge every single person impartially and fairly and completely. Let him do that. That's his job. Let him do it. And so we see love in practice when we love others in the church and in the world with conviction, commitment, and compassion, but we love others in the world with empathy, humility, and forgiveness. Now, what does this love do? What can it do? Well, I dare say that love can change lives. It changed my life. Now, remember the story by Bill Bright. Bill Bright was the founder and president of Campus Crusade for Christ. And he tells a story about a, a law firm that he dealt with. He knew two partners in this law firm. <clears throat> and he writes, I know two partners who used to hate each other. When one of them became a Christian, he came to me for counsel and he asked me, you know, now that I'm a Christian, what should I do about this partner? I said, well, why don't you go to him, ask him to forgive you, and tell him that you love him? The other partner said, I could never do that because, hey, I don't love him. That lawyer had put his finger squarely on one of the great challenges of the Christian life. On the one hand, everybody wants to be loved. But on the other hand, many people never experience it. That's why we need to learn love as Christ loves, unconditionally. We can't manufacture that kind of love. It only comes from God. It's a love that draws people to Christ. 
Well, I prayed with that attorney, and then he went off on his own way. The next morning, he did go to his partner and said to him, you know, I've become a Christian, and I want to ask you to forgive me for all that I've done to hurt you, and I want you to know that I love you. His response was not what he expected. The partner was so surprised and so taken by surprise by this and so convicted of his own actions that he too asked for forgiveness and said, I would like to become like you. I want to become a Christian. Would you please tell me how? See what love can do. Love. It's love that changes lives, that changes hearts. It's God's love that transforms us from enemies. It's not something we can come up with. It's not something we can drum up. It's something that only you can give. And you have indeed given it to us in Christ. Help us, Lord, to be filled not only with this love, but to give this kind of love by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, Lord, it is my hope and prayer that you would be glorified, that lives would be transformed, and that your church would be encouraged. We thank you, we praise you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. amen.